Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, criticizing the Environment Minister. None of the, uh, the concessions that we've made and none of the approaches that we've made to find some common ground matter. The Alberta Premier does not hold back on Stephen Guilbeault, while his own colleague in the Liberal caucus says Guilbeault is the wrong man to deliver Trudeau's climate plan message. Coming up, we'll speak to our weekend journalist panel and get their take on the criticism. Also... This is a great victory for all of us in Manitoba. With Manitoba's first First Nations Premier soon to be sworn in, what impact will his election to office have on Indigenous priorities? Coming up, we'll speak to AFN Regional Chief Cindy Woodhouse. And... Alberta ratepayers would be entitled to 53% of the assets, which would reduce premiums, increase benefits. We'll air the second part of our interview with the Alberta Premier today, focusing on her hopes for an Alberta pension plan outside the CPP. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. The Liberal MP for the Newfoundland riding of Avalon voted against his own party's carbon tax Wednesday and then went on TV to say his government's environment minister is the wrong man for the job, echoing a criticism from the Alberta Premier this week when she said here on Primetime Politics that Stephen Guilbeault was not listening to concerns about affordability because he is, quote, an ideologue. We have a working group happening right now, and yet you have Stephen Gibbeau acting as if none of that's going on, that none of the, uh, the concessions that we've made and none of the approaches that we've made to find some common ground matter. And the, the real problem that we have in Alberta is that is the absolute reality, is that we are facing the potential already of having instability in our grid. And if we don't have a mechanism to bring new baseload power on, we're going to end up with the same problems that you see in Germany and California and Texas. Well, joining us now is our weekend journalist panel. Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Andy Sinclair is columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press. Hello to the three of you. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having us. So listen, I do want to begin with what we just heard from Danielle Smith. As we said in the, in, in the introduction, here she is calling the Environment Minister an ideologue. And add on to that the criticism that comes from a Liberal MP uh, about Stephen Gil- saying that he's not the man to deliver the message. Is Stephen Guilbeault the right ambassador for the environment file? Well, you know, despite what Madam Smith and, and, and Mr. McDonald think, um, I guess the more important thing is the Prime Minister thinks that Stephen Guilbeault is the right man for the file and is not prepared to move him. In the most recent reset of this government, he's one of the people that he kept in place because they actually love to be on the international stage touting that they have an environmental activist as the environmental minister. Uh, But there's no question that he's got a really tough message to deliver, not just to Daniel Smith, but to many provinces on climate change. And yeah, they've, they've had big clashes. I understand there's also been lots of big clashes within cabinet over this stuff, but, uh, 
But I think the, the fact of the matter is he's not going anywhere. And he does have the backing of the government on the clean electricity plan. And the budget is putting billions and billions and billions of dollars behind going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Clean electricity plan. And also really good to point out what Danielle Smith is talking about is clean electricity. What uh, Ms. McDonald was talking about had to do with the carbon tax Bingo. at large. But, you know, to, let's get back to Stephen Gilbo, though, Bob. Uh, here you have a, a conservative premier and a liberal MP making a very similar criticism. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, Miss Smith is the wrong person to be accusing somebody of being an idologue because she is an idologue on a lot of issues herself. Uh, but I do think that the, that she has a point in this regard. Um, Stephen Gibault, um is not an effective ambassador in uh, large parts of the country. He is... He, I think he sells well in Quebec, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why they wanted him. And to uh, Tonda's point, uh, you know, uh, internationally he is uh, an eco warrior uh, or environmental warrior, and and they like to put him in the in the in the window in that regard. But he is not uh, a great, um, in my view, anyway. He doesn't seem to have an ability to work well with other provinces, uh, and that's a skill set that Catherine McKinnon. Uh, even though she was a, as, as felt as strongly about the economy as he did, had more of an ability to do so. And it's easier for the Conservatives and for Smith to be able to paint him in a corner as somebody who's, oh, look at this guy, he's too much of an ideologue, he, he, he doesn't understand the economy, uh, and he's the wrong person for this kind of job. And it, it has been effective for uh, Pierre Polyev in the way they've targeted him. But he isn't going anywhere, yes. so folks yeah. got to live with it. Yeah. Uh, Nigan, what do you make of it? Uh, well, Alberta got a Alberta, as I would say, <laughs> uh, in that you know what we've got is we've got uh, a, pro a premier in uh, Danielle Smith who's uh, talking about Alberta first, is talking about uh, we want half the money of the pension plan back. Uh, the fact is, you know, the any chance they could, Alberta can get to try to gain votes. I mean, whenever Daniel Smith is in trouble, it's immediately turning not to the NDP as much as it is to Justin Trudeau because she knows she can get favorability. And particularly on the environmental file. I mean, the environmental file, uh, the issues around the carbon tax, uh, endlessly score political points for Danielle Smith. But at the same time, I think Bob's right. You know, uh, Stephen Guibault has a real problem with communication. Um, also, I think one of the major issues around the Trudeau cabinet is that since the shuffle and then since the kind of paranoia of the rise of Pierre Polyev, uh, the cabinet's becoming tighter and tighter. And what that means is it's more apt to being accused of Ottawa insiders, nepotism, and the kind of... Uh, uh, you know, issues around sort of seeing a, a particular type of political brand as being most favorable to Justin Trudeau and to Stephen Gubo fits all of those uh, criteria. I mean, you know, even just painting him as an activist is a way to sort of talk about Trudeau as a grassroots person or community person. And so uh, the challenge, of course, is always going to be comms with this government. I mean, we all know that the Trudeau government has suffered for years, uh, whether it be the WE scandal, whether it be Jody Wilson-Raybould. I mean, comms is the challenge of this government. They continually have a, a government that kind of stumbles upon itself. But I mean, on this issue, uh, you, you can't give the right uh, Pierre Polly of Danielle Smith more fodder than they already have. I would just, I just want to jump in there because I think actually it goes, I, I think comms is, is a big challenge for them, but I don't think it's the only challenge. And I think this is an example of where policy is a big challenge. And it's not just in Alberta. Uh, look, Atlantic Canada, it has big 
also problems with um, not just the sort sort of some of the the, the electricity stuff. But the carbon tax, the, the, the implications of their economies for what the government's trying to do on, uh, on the environment. And so, yeah, it is a comms problem, but it is also a policy problem. And, you know, we've all just remarked about how Gibo is perhaps not the, the, the best man for some of that stuff. But I think that he's the front man for Trudeau. And I think that they've committed, they're, they're all in on the, on the climate change plan, right? And they've committed... They put their money where their mouth is on it, so we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. But I, I think that actually, it's not just comms; it's execution and it's policy design. Yeah, well, certainly, you know, we we, we even saw that in, in London when the Liberal caucus met before the return of Parliament. Many, not necessarily in front of the media, expressing concerns that this is not going to be a winning issue for them at the ballot box. It's so, trouble for so them. So we're going to watch. But listen, uh, before we're done here, I also want to talk about the historic uh, moment that happened in Manitoba this week: the election of a majority NDP government. Mm-hmm. Wab Canoe now set to be sworn in as the first First Nations Premier in the province's history. Uh, let's take a listen right now to what he had to say about the moment. My wife, my mom, my kids had the toughest job in this election, which is that they had to put up with the attack ads without the ability to respond. And what I was able to tell them last night is that the people of Manitoba chose to reject that. And I would add that my Uncle Fred was on stage with us too, who was in St. Mary's Residential School who experienced the worst of it in our country's history. So whatever feeling I have uh, pales in comparison to how humble I feel uh, to be walking in the trail that was blazed by others in our province. Now, uh, since election night, there have been many words shared about uh, history being made. Tanya Talaga, uh, with your paper, Bob, writing that there are those who now say that the eighth fire has been lit. So, uh, so I just want to go around the table here, beginning with you, with you, Nigan. What do you make of the significance of this moment? Well, uh, with all due respect to Tanya, I think the eighth fire has been lit for a while now. It's not simply due to our First Nations premier. But, but that being said, uh, the the real challenge here is yes, I can appreciate uh, what Wob said in terms of rejecting the politics of division, the fact that this is the most racially tinged campaign in Manitoba history, and then on top of that, the fact that you know we saw women in a landfill, there were human remains of human beings in a landfill being used as a political ploy for uh, points to divide Manitobans. I don't know if that was rejected as much as Wab Canoe wants to paint it to be. I mean, we are talking about 30% of the electorate, 208,000 votes were cast for the Conservatives. Now, I'm not saying that's supporting the uh, the ideas that, you know, the, the uh, NDP party uh, somehow is a bunch of full of ruffians or problems or brown skinned people who want to defund the police. And that's certainly how they were painted. Uh, I'm just saying that they are certainly a lot of Manitobans, a large segment of Manitobans that were deeply uncomfortable with the nation of an Indigenous premier. And so while we take a step in the area of reconciliation or we take a step in the area of inclusivity, we take a step in what Bob Canoe's talking about of undoing some of those issues around residential schools. I mean, the challenge is still very much here. And while I'm very proud of Manitoba and I'm really impressed that Manitoba would reject some deep politics of division, uh, it is not quite that simple. We have much work to do. And never mind the fact that Bob Canoe has chosen the most difficult issue to stake his political career on healthcare. Uh, multiple politicians have not been able to fix it. And uh, if he stumbles in any way, we know that if you are an Indigenous person and you stumble, you don't get a second chance as much as often as perhaps other people do. 
Chanda? Well, I think that, you know, moments like the election of Wab Canoe, the election of Greg Fergus, these are moments that are freighted, you know, the firsts, right? They're freighted with symbolism. And, you know, a lot of people who feel now represented where they weren't before take uh, great, I guess, pride and, and comfort from that. But to Nagan's point, I mean, I think that also all of these things are... You know, they're great in the moment, and then um, I think people are held to sometimes stricter tests, but, you know, are held to high standards. And all, I would just also add that all institutions are the people, and as strong or as weak as the people in those seats, right? So, you know, just, just being representative for Mr. Canoe may not be enough, uh, and we'll see on that health care test. I think that Nigan's right. That's going to be a huge challenge for him. Yeah, well, you know, I will say, I, I asked uh, Wap Canoe when I was in Winnipeg whether or not, you know, being the first, there's always pressure on being the first. Does he feel extra mm -hmm. weight? He didn't really answer the question, but without a doubt, that is that is a specter in the room. Uh, Bob, what do you say about this moment? Well, look, we have many, many miles to walk. Um, this is an important uh, milestone for sure, but uh, I let's go back to uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, I remember when she walked uh, down that summer or fall day um, when she was sworn in and the people were, had tears in their eyes, the first Indigenous Justice Minister, and what happened to her? She got chewed up by the system when she tried to be ethical and honest to, to, uh, and uh, not to well, bend to the Prime Minister's will to interfere in a, in a criminal prosecution. So, you know, there, there, I don't, as important as this is, we can only celebrate when we don't have any more indigenous people living in poverty on reserves and we don't have our streets full of indigenous people who do not have the same opportunity as, as us, uh, important step, but my God, we've got a long, long, long ways to go. Really appreciate that, uh, Bob, Tonda, and of course, Nigan, thank you for joining this week. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, miigwech, thanks. Manitoba NDP leader Wab Canoe made history on Tuesday, leading his party to a decisive election victory and becoming the first First Nations person to ever make it to the Premier's office in a Canadian province. Canoe's party won 34 seats to the Progressive Conservatives' 22, more than the 29 needed to form a majority government. Take a listen to what Canoe told his supporters in downtown Winnipeg on election night. I was given a second chance in life and I would like to think that I've made good on that opportunity and you can do the same here's how my life became immeasurably better when I stopped making excuses and I started looking for a reason and I found that reason in our family. I found that reason in our community. And I found that reason in our province and country. Well, for more on the significance of Canoe's big win and what it means for Indigenous peoples in Manitoba, I did speak with Cindy Woodhouse. She is the Regional Chief for the Assembly of First Nations. We met in Winnipeg the day after the vote. Thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming here and welcome to Treaty One Territory. Thank you for that. You know, this is such a, a momentous moment uh, to see Wab Canoe elected as the first First Nations Premier of this province, the first provincial uh, First Nations Premier in the country. 
how does that change the relationship, do you think, between Indigenous peoples in this area, in this treaty territory, with the provincial government? Well, I think it's it's a signal that, um, you know, Canadians, Manitobans, you know, because I was a little bit apprehensive yesterday about what that would mean for our people, because it was it's been such a divisive campaign, especially when it came to the landfill. Very disheartening to, uh, you know, to have to receive those flyers in your mailbox from the PC party. And I thought that we, I thought we advanced from that, right? And and then and then you kind of have a moment in time where, you know, is racism, and um, going to win, and and is and is divisive dark politics going to win? And you kind of, you know, you kind of hold your breath yesterday, wondering, you know, at the same time. You have faith in young First Nations people that are seeing, you know, somebody like themselves that's rose to the top of a major political party in Manitoba, that he would become, you know, that that he could become premier. And so I think you had, you know, twofold. You had all these young people that are ready to talk about reconciliation, even though they're going to be very hard discussions. And I think that uh, the PCs with, with their antics opened up, you know, poked a big, big bear, which was young people that that flocked to the the ballot box. And as well, I think that many Manitobans are pretty, you know, I think that they're pretty balanced. And I think that it put a bad taste in their mouth when there was dark politics happening in this province. It was really hard to watch as a person, never mind me being First Nation or anything else, but just as a person watching that, that... Um, that you'd be targeting voiceless women in landfills and that their family having to watch that. Imagine that being your family and you have to watch that through a political, through a political campaign. And yes, we have to talk about those things, but I don't know why it had to be front and centre. It was un- unfortunate. It should have been just automatic that, yes, let's get to the table, let's work together. So, I mean, I, I commend, you know, the federal government today for making sure that those investments get to that family to start, um, you know, re-looking at, um, you know, coming back together and, and kind of having a, a refresh of what that means. A refresh. And when it comes to the, the landfill site itself, how do you think that should proceed? What, what do you want to see happen now that you have uh, the NDP coming into government? Well, I think you know the NDP, the NDP provincially now, and the and the and the federal Liberals, um, you know, they need to get to the table together with the families, and of course with Chief Kyra Wilson, with Grand Chief Kathy Merrick of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, and come together in a good way. And I think that they have to they have to find that path forward. So I think that they need some time to come together to, to um, you know, to agree on on what's the next steps. And I'm not an expert in that, but I know that not talking about it and using it in a political platform was um, obviously very wrong, and it showed at the ballot box. Uh, having Wap Canoe sit in the Premier's office, of course, a historic moment, and for many people, a powerful moment. Uh, where do you want to see beyond the, the, the landfill search? What else do you want to see from this government? What do you think Wab Canoe and his cabinet need to prioritize in, in, as they begin their term? Well, I think I think first and foremost, First Nations. You know, when it count, comes to the Council of the Federation meetings, when it comes to um, you know the First Ministers meetings, we're always left in the background, and we always have a meeting with all these premiers and the Prime Minister and all these ministers the day before, like as if we're little kids. 
And I think that it's, you know, we, we will, regardless if he's First Nations or not, we will be there pushing for a spot to make sure that our people have a full seat at the table and that when they're talking about health care, when they're talking about education, when they're talking about, re, you know, the, the um, child welfare system in this country, that we have a seat at the table just like the, you know, the, like other levels of government, because we are governments. Our people are governments, and we can speak for ourselves. And we're happy that he's elected, but we also have expectations that hopefully he'll be an ally in our in our in our cause and our discussion on asking for a full seat at the table. So, do you look at this with a sense of hope or a sense of trepidation? I think it's absolutely a sense of hope. I think things are changing. I think um, new leaders are rising up and, and new ways of thinking are rising up. That old mindset from 50 years ago has to be um, done and gone away with. I think we've seen that yesterday, like I said, the dark politics and I think um, the divisive politics. People don't have a taste for that and an appetite for that anymore. And I think that all political parties in our country um, need to take heed of that and, and remember that um, people know, including bus the business community, including First Nations, that we all have to work together. And we have to work together even when it's really difficult and even when we have to have difficult discussions with each other. But I think with, with WA being elected, that's hope. I think, you know, after I know he was, uh, you know, a member of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think after that, because I remember um, 30 years ago, I'm aging myself now, but when I was a young young girl listening to stats of what Canadians thought of us or how Manitobans thought of us and going through those, hearing those really tough issues and, and how people maybe didn't understand who we were and to seeing now that we were moving in a good way and I think it's through through education, through awareness, through talking to each other. I always appreciate our conversations. Thank you for the time today. Thank you so much. Miigwech. Well, back to our interview with the Alberta Premier Danielle Smith this week. On Thursday, we played the first part of our discussion on the $8 million social media campaign that Smith launched to push back on Ottawa's proposed net zero electricity grid by 2035. Well, in the second part of our discussion, Premier Smith and I discussed her thoughts on pulling her province out of the Canada Pension Plan to create one that's purely Alberta's. I do also want to talk to you today about the CPP uh, because if things go to plan there will be a referendum in 2025 on Alberta possibly pulling out of the Canada Pension Plan. How do you see that as being advantageous for people in your province? I think people needed to understand just how much we end up overpaying on every single federal program. This has been a conversation in our province since 2001, when Stephen Harper and other academics wrote what was called the firewall letter about why can't we assert the same jurisdiction that Quebec does, have our own police force, our own revenue agency, our own pension plan, our own immigration uh, system. Those are the kind of things that, uh, that were in a discussion called the Fair Deal Panel a number of years ago. And one of the things that came out of it was doing the examination of how an Alberta pension plan would, would benefit Alberta pensioners. As we found out, uh, Morneau Chappelle did the initial report. They since uh, got released in, by Lifemark and then TELUS. I mean, there's three different companies involved in it, but they all came to the same conclusion. Using the formula in the act, 
Alberta ratepayers would be entitled to 53% of the assets, which would reduce premiums, increase benefits, and also create a, an ecosystem for uh, for a really interesting build out of our financial community here. And so those are the things that we're going to be uh, uh, consulting on. Okay, uh, let me let me also ask. Sorry, sorry to interrupt though, but you know the numbers that you're using, they're they're not agreed upon numbers, as you know, because you say Alberta would be entitled to to half of the the CPP funds assets, but the CPP's investment board says really you're you're looking at a 16 percent entitlement. Would that still leave Albertans richer, better off, if an Alberta fund had fewer assets than expected? Well, I guess we'll have to go to the court to decide if the legislation means what the legislation means. I mean, we wanted to use somebody who is experienced in doing actuarial analysis and read the legislation, and that's the number that they came up with. Um, and so that's the number number that, that, that we're consulting on. If it ends up in court where we try to, to have to figure that out, then that's what we will do. But I would say that the uh, there have been multiple times that we've gone through over the years where that pension formula could have been adjusted, most recently 2019. So we have to go based on how, what the legislation and the statute says. And that's the, the calculation we ended up with. That's the measure of how much Albertans over-contribute. We over-contribute on premiums because we have a higher workforce participation rate, a larger number of, of workers working at the highest levels and contributing the max as well as a younger population and as a result we end up overpaying on this program and every other one so there is a mechanism for us to be able to have a have a referendum to see if albertans want to create their own plan and if that's what they tell us that they want to do then we'll put it to a referendum okay you point to some of the current demographics including having such a young population in alberta but what if those demographics switch what if that doesn't hold longer than a couple of generations where does that leave maybe not alberta's children right now but the province's grandchildren and those who follow what type of economic security can you guarantee or talk about if you don't have a, a larger pension fund like the cpp well, I guess I'm not defeatist. I think Alberta is on its way to double its population. We have an exciting culture here. We've got entrepreneurial spirit here. We have the highest number of people coming to this province in our history. And I, I expect that if we have good government policy, that's going to continue. That's the culture of Alberta. And so I'm, I'm not going to be defeatist about it. And I think that we have the expertise to be able to, to manage our own affairs just as well as Quebec does. And I that's why I'm persuaded by the report. But it's not up to me. It's going to be up to Albertans. And they'll be the ones who give us the feedback in the, in the review panel that we're doing. Okay, a review panel that would then possibly lead to a 2025 referendum. But in your mind right now, Premier, I'm wondering, what would the wording of that referendum be? Would it be to further explore and then hold a subsequent referendum down the road? Or are you talking about an immediate mandate to pull out of CPP altogether? I mean, if it comes down to it, and uh, with the panel discussion, I mean, they're reporting back to us in May. They're in the process of doing their consultation. And we'll have a pretty clear idea of whether Albertans want to have a referendum on this. And the referendum will be, do you want to uh, give notice to the CPP Investment Board that you want to establish your own Alberta pension plan, yes or no? It'll be very, it'll, it would be very straightforward. At this moment, I, I don't know, I don't have a good gauge on whether Albertans even want to have that vote, but that would be the, it would be up to them. Albertans would, would make that choice in a referendum if that's what they tell us they want to do. Premier Danielle Smith, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. You bet. Talk to you again. Well, time now for a look at the top stories of the past week. This is a bill that is more interested in protecting the interests of pharmaceutical companies than protecting people in our country that need to buy medication. 
The federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has rejected the first draft of the Liberals' Pharmacare legislation. The Liberals promised to table one by the end of the year as part of their supply and confidence deal. A group of NDP activists are planning to push at the party's convention next week for Pharmacare to be the make-or-break element of that deal. And CPAC will be on the ground for the convention in Hamilton to bring you the latest. History was made in Manitoba this week. NDP leader Wab Kanu elected to be Canada's first First Nations provincial premier. Manitoba did something more progressive than any of those big cities ever did. We elected a strong team of new Democrats to fix health care and make your life more affordable. Canoe says health care will be the main focus of his government. He's also making affordable housing and fixing homelessness priorities while also pledging to search the Prairie Green Landfill. Another historic first in Canadian politics, Liberal MP Greg Fergus becomes the country's first black speaker of the House of Commons. What I vow to work night and day to promote and advance can be summed up in one word respect. Respect for each other. The way we treat each other. The way we talk to Canadians. In other words, this is all about decorum. Fergus has been the MP for Hall Elmer since 2015 and served as the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. He succeeds former Speaker Anthony Rhoda, who resigned last week. Rhoda stepping down for honoring a Ukrainian veteran in the House of Commons, finding out later that the man was a member of a Nazi unit during the Second World War. And that is our program for this weekend. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will not air next week, but do join us starting Thursday for extensive coverage of the NDP National Convention. Until then, take care, and from everyone here at CPAC, have a happy Thanksgiving.